Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Rabella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, uh, in, the, in the history of the United States, fisheries was one of the founding industries in the country back in the colonial days. Massachusetts, very early on, significant fisheries uh, economy. Absolutely. And those Northeast states, you know, even today, Maine and Massachusetts are leading states in American fisheries. And we're going to be talking about that today. We are. We have a really great guest, Peter, who has just written a book about the blue revolution and what is happening to existing and new industries uh, on the ocean that will impact our food supply in the future. Yeah, that's exactly right. Nicholas P. Sullivan is a senior research fellow at the Center for Maritime Studies at the Fletcher School, uh, Tufts University. And he is the author, as you said, of The Blue Revolution, Hunting, Harvesting, Farming, Seafood in the Information Age, published by the Island Press, coming out this week, I believe, Tyler. It is available to readers around the world. Uh, Nick Sullivan is an experienced author and writes about a wide variety of topics involving economics and technology, A couple of books I want to mention. Uh, Money, real quick, Kenya's disruptive mobile money innovation. Uh, And a second book, You Can Hear Me Now, How Cell Phones Are Connecting the World's Poor to the Global Economy. So you can tell Dr. Sullivan, I mean, uh, Nick Sullivan uh, really has an expansive uh, subject area of interest. Absolutely. And I'm really looking forward uh, to getting into it, Peter. You know, we talk a lot about the situation with the right whale up in New England. And just in that one issue comes to bear uh, so many of the issues that are going to be the future of fisheries. Can we regulate? Can we take out of the ocean? Can we be sustainable as temperatures change and fish stocks migrate? These are the big questions of this decade and beyond. And uh, Nick Sullivan has written one hell of a book here that we look forward to talking with him about. But before we do, Peter, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, Our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Well, Nick, uh, if it's all right with you, we always like to start off and get to know uh, our guests a little bit. In this case, Nick Sullivan, the great author and thinker. Uh, but can you tell us how uh, you came to write uh, this book on the Blue Revolution? Yes. Um, and of course, it, it, based on the other books that I've written that you mentioned, uh, clearly this is a different uh, subject entirely. But I actually wrote about fishing in the 1970s when I was in college. And uh, the Russian and East European factory ships were off the shores of Cape Cod raiding George's Bank. And the day boat uh, fishermen out of Cape Cod and uh, the trawlers out of New Bedford were trying to fend off the, uh, the foreigners. And, of course, that led to the uh, institution of the 200-mile limit in 1976. So I did some other writing following that, but then I dropped it and I got into the computer revolution and started writing about the impact of technology on uh, entrepreneurship and social innovation. And um, that 
eventually led me into international uh, entrepreneurship and innovation, which is the, the, the mobile money, the spread of telephone, uh, mobile phones throughout South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. During the course of that work, a lot of which was done with uh, USAID, Agency for International Development, it became clear that you know in every country, food security was a cornerstone of uh, international development. Hmm. And in many countries, fish was a cornerstone of food security. Uh, so I, you know, like many uh, of your listeners probably, and you, and have heard so many dire stories about depletion of fish stocks, I started to wonder uh, where the fish were going to come from to feed the world. You know, we have a growing world that's, you know, inching toward 10 billion by 2050. There are more people eating more fish, more people getting lean protein from fish. Um, so I basically started out with that question. And to link back to my previous work um, with um, technology and innovation, I did see that things were changing in this industry, which had been, you know, is, is or has been, uh, you know, a throwback industry. You know, much of the many other industries have adopted, you know, Sensors, you, machine you don't, learning. You don't become a, a fisherman if you're like into high tech pursuits. It's it's almost the opposite. It's fishing was a uh, an old school passed down from perhaps your father, maybe your grandfather, maybe in a rare case there was a, a grandmother out there fishing. But uh, by all by all accounts, I think Peter, it's safe to say that traditional industry in America. Yeah. For sure. And, um, and they're hunters, you know, they're not, uh, and, you know, and for, for so long, and that's, you know, part of the story here is so long, uh, uh, hunters were free to roam the seas and uh, take whatever they could, you know, uh, each man, each boat for itself. And um, that obviously kind of uh, reached a tipping point where the stock started to uh, tail off in the 90s. Well, actually, in the 80s and then uh, more dramatically in the 90s. Well, as you point out in the book, the big transformation legally that occurred in 1976 was the passage of the Magnuson-Stevenson Fisheries Conservation and Management Act, uh, the bedrock law that governs fisheries management in the United States today, uh, has gone through several, as you point out, I think very thoroughly in the book, uh, the reauthorizations of that law and the innovations in that law. The sum total of, of the analysis, I think, that you've done, Nick, really indicates that in the United States, by and large, fisheries management is a success story. Uh, yes, it, it really is compared to the, most of the rest of the world. And um, it's because of that law that uh, has governed uh, fisheries uh, since 76. And in particular, the last rewrite, which was uh, 2007, um, uh, prior to that, you know, the management had been a kind of a days at sea regime, you know, started out at 200 days per, uh, per year. And then, you know, it slowly crept down to like 50 days per year. So they kept reducing the uh, time at sea, but they switched to an annual catch limit mm -hmm. per stock. And then, you know, divvied out quotas to individual boats. And that put a real um, uh, tight control on the amount of fish that uh, could be taken out of the ocean. And there was, you know, electronic, well, not, there was human monitoring that's turning into electronic monitoring and, and, and environmental police and uh, on the docks counting. And uh, so there was a lot of oversight. And the end result is that since 2000, um, 47 stocks that were overfished and kind of shut down for rebuilding have been rebuilt and opened up again. So that's uh, very impressive. And, uh, and there are now more ground fish in the, in the Northeast uh, uh, states than there were 25 years ago, even though the cod, you know, is depleted, the flounder is depleted. But uh, because of these controls, uh, there's a lot of abundant uh, ground fish in the ocean. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, the other thing that it allows them to do, I'm talking about the fisheries now, is brand yeah. their product as sustainable, which is something that uh, you see a lot, and I think increasingly 
uh, coming out of American fisheries is that there there's a certain degree of pride and value added, I suppose, in being able to say, hey, look, this is a sustainable wild-caught fishery. But you used the word revolution, and you talked about uh, your other work uh, in technology and entrepreneurship. Uh, and you have, I think you, I think it's fair to say, Nick, that you have an eye for change and when things are changing. And uh, during this period of time in the mid-70s, when uh, these initial protections and regulations were put in place on fisheries, what was the state of play? I mean, were were the fisheries entirely depleted by that point, and basically uh, the fishermen w- were eager for an answer, or uh, was it like going to the dentist's office <laughs> to get these uh, uh, regulations in place? Well, no, I don't think anyone really thought that the fisheries were depleted then. Um, I think they thought that the foreigners were scooping up all the fish off George's Bank, which is one of the you know most hallowed fishing grounds in the world. And um, no, it, so it was a kind of a domestic territorial protection act, really, more than a, a, a stock protection act. So and, the motivation um, was not that the fish stocks had, had just bottomed out and they needed to have protections. No, I don't think so. But they did introduce in that act the idea of the maximum sustainable yield, mm-hmm. that you can only fish any given stock to its maximum sustainable yield, which is the yield that will allow it to reproduce year after year after year to continue the fishery. Um, but um, one of the problems with that, which was uh, kind of fixed in the 96 rewrite, is that it never really, if you're fishing one stock to, to its maximum sustainable yield, it doesn't protect all the other fish that you might catch and throw overboard to bycatch. So there was a lot of wasted fish in that, you know, you put out a trawl net and if you only want cod and you throw the rest of the stuff overboard, uh, that's not so good. Mm-hmm. So they, there were, you know, regulations in 96 to protect against bycatch. And now, and so for instance, um, cod and haddock swim together, right? And there's like severe restrictions on the quotas on the amount of cod that you can take. But if you're targeting haddock, which is very abundant, you have to avoid cod. And because fishermen are doing that, they're only taking 10 to 15% of the uh, potential haddock out of the ocean. So they're leaving a lot of fish and a lot of money in the water because they're trying to protect mm. against the bycatch. It's fair to say that the regulatory structure on fisheries is incredibly complicated and intricate. <clears throat> the, uh, the law is implemented through the fisheries management councils, these regional bodies uh, that exist around the shoreline of, of the United States. Uh, the fishermen are at the table, the stakeholders, the regulators are all part of the management system, the scientists. Um, the bottom line, though, uh, Nick, as you point out, is the system has uh, it's, is a success. Uh, there is, however, uh, a level, and I think you document it well in the book, uh, in the sections that deals with the cowboys of the sea, Tyler, the Wild West of American fisheries back in the day. Absolutely. And there's still an ethos and a... Uh, a mythology of commercial fishing about the independent, you know, the deadliest catch. It's a big show, yeah. you know, right. yeah. the adventure right. of it all, the adventure of it all. Uh, I wonder, Nick, as you were doing the research and talking to commercial fishermen, uh, the book is extensively researched, extensively more than hundred, I think that's 120 interviews went, went into the book. Uh, has the mentality of the commercial fishermen that you spoke with evolved to a point where they are receptive or more receptive to the role of government regulation in their livelihoods? Or are we still in the Wild West days? Can, can you generalize uh, that? Yeah. Well, uh, first, I should say that this book is not really so much about commercial fishermen, about the act of fishing. It's more about fish as food and where's the fish going to come from. But yes, the, um, you know, fishermen, as you probably know, have bridled against a lot of these regulations. And um, 
it's incredibly complex and dynamic and changes year to year and sometimes uh, month to month, depending on the stock. And so it's almost like you need a law degree to, uh, to kind of figure out what you can and can't do. Um, so that's pretty onerous. And, um, and, uh, but they have no choice really. And, uh, but that's why it led to, you know, uh, people like the codfather that I wrote about the kind of colorful figure in New Bedford who was uh, uh, not reporting his catch or mislabeling or misreporting his catch or not reporting his his revenues and uh, finally got uh, apprehended by IRS undercover agents. And um, but it's because if you follow following the rules, it really cramps your style and it's not the way that these guys grew up. It's not the- yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm not terribly sympathetic to it. I understand the the, the concern, but the the, the bottom line is uh, these fish stocks are incredibly valuable. They're a public resource, and these uh, fishing communities depend on the sustainability of those uh, those fish stocks, and and it's a complicated matter and involves a lot of stakeholder engagement and a lot of regulation and a whole bunch of science and. Uh, Hell, I, I when I when I was a kid and we had to learn how to play Monopoly. Monopoly. I think the the instruction books for Monopoly was about fifteen pages. Tyler it looked like <laughs> fine print. I mean, there isn't any economic game you can play that doesn't have complex rules. Well, it, my my sense here, if I if I might just jump in here, Nick, and g- give my thoughts, it's that uh, you know historically the uh, the, the ocean was. I mean, truly, I mean, it's. I think the ocean has always been a kind of public space. I mean, it was not. Yeah. It was not really ownable by man for a long time. It was uh, a purely nature's kind of wilderness zone. And uh, the first industries on the water. The first industry has got to be fishing. The next industry has got to be shipping, and that was pretty much it for thousands <laughs> of years. And. Uh, Now that we have orbited the planet and we see the planet, particularly, Peter, the way you and I talk on this show through the lens of climate change and through the lens of the finiteness of resources, and you look at the planet from space and it's so clearly a blue planet, I think that it has become clear to those of us that pay attention to climate change and and the, the problems that we're facing that the ocean is going to be a big player in the future of humanity and those old dynamics those inherited i'm not even going to say grandfathered in because i i think they're grandfathered out we're moving (laughs) on i I agree with you i i completely agree with you peter uh the idea that well it's not the way it was in the old way the old days uh those days are changing on the ocean there's going to be brand new industries coming in left and right we are seeing uh offshore wind aquaculture new shipping stuff. There's AUVs out there on the water. Seabed mining. There's potentially seabed mining coming online. There's going to be a lot more data available so that measurements will be taken. And uh, the old school kind of go out on the ocean and feel your way around uh, for for money. Uh, I just, I, I, I mean, I just don't, I can't imagine that being the way that it will operate much further. Nick, what do you think? No, I, I mean, it obviously led to what they would call the tragedy of the commons, right? As you said, it, is, it was a common space, uh, is a common space still, but if everyone is out for their own self-interest and uh, maximizing their take and their profit and so forth, at some point, uh, everyone's going to lose. Uh, but one, you know, one, um, you talk about complex systems, so the... Um, uh, the Magnuson Act that um, led to the quotas and the transferable quotas actually had kind of, it stopped all that, but it led to another issue, which is kind of a privatization of the sea, because now Mm -hmm. the only people that have really access to it are the smaller number of boats that have permits and quotas, because a lot of boats have just lost their right to fish or gone out of business. So now, you know, there's, you know, it's a smaller and smaller number of boats that basically do own the ocean. <laughs> so it's, an, it's a different, so the industry mm-hmm. is consolidated. 
So I say in several places in this book that, you know, the last 20 years have been better for the fish in many ways than it has been for the fishermen. Yeah. Well, I think it, <clears throat> I do think that you, you do explain that well, the, the, and, and I think it was unintentional that the, that the Magnuson Act would foster the consolidation of uh, the fishing industry. Uh, the regulatory structure gets more complex. It gets more comp- costly to operate uh, so that you end up with fewer players. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, you, you mentioned food security as kind of the driving question underneath uh, the Blue Revolution book. Um, and whether we can fulfill the demand for for fish around the world as the population explodes, as you say, reaching up to 10 billion uh, by 2050, uh, are you optimistic that innovation uh, can help us produce the level of fish protein that you think uh, we are all going to want to have? Uh, how does it look to you, Nick? Well, yeah, I guess that's a little hard to say, but I am fairly optimistic because, you know, I mean, the answer to where is the food going to come, fish going to come from is obviously from aquaculture or mariculture, marine aquaculture, and uh, which is now, you know, aquaculture itself. Right now, the majority of aquaculture, I think, is 60-40 freshwater versus marine, but that's shifting because the marine uh, sector is obviously much bigger than the freshwater sector. Uh, but it's more than 50% of the fish that is consumed in the world. And um, that is just going to keep increasing. And, you know, just as, you know, the, the wild stocks were depleted in the 1990s and led to this kind of change in policy and behavior and uh, that has transformed the industry, the, you know, the Norwegian salmon farming of the 90s that alarmed people so much, mm-hmm. uh, you know, given the environmental uh negative impacts and the escapement and the sea lice and the antibiotics and so forth, that has all changed too. So aquaculture has really transformed, you know, even though it's much younger than the wild capture, it's transforming even faster, really. It's a, it's a very high tech science-based, evidence-based, uh, technology-based uh, industry now. I think that's the assertion in the book is that there are technological improvements, innovation, uh, better information, better management that's going to transform <clears throat> what we produce and how we produce it when it comes to fish protein. Um, you know, I'm always skeptical about the magic of technology argument, Tyler. It's sort of like you see technological change in in transportation with Uber and Lyft, and you see a complete transformation of how that uh, service and industry operates or Airbnb, right. um, these technological changes um, can be transformative, uh, but not always uniformly positive. Uh, we have a weird relationship with technology these days, I think, because yeah. so much of our modern technology has been uh, digital and information-based. And what I've been thinking a lot about lately is how technology is not just digital stuff it's like how people use stuff if that makes sense like like our like our be our relationship to an object can is part of the technology how to you know a hammer is just a, a thing it becomes a technology when you learn how to hit things with it specifically nails or maybe you know up, 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 you're doing demolition well, your, your opponents on the- <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. exactly but uh there is a, a human usage component and i my personal feeling is that um we have a lot of uh human behavioral technology that mm-hmm. we need to develop to use these really advanced tools and uh capabilities that we have developed. I mean, technologically, as we have said, you know, we can solve so many of the world's problems technologically. Like we do possess the science, the understanding, the manufacturing capability, but what we lack are the economic incentives and the yeah. the value structure within our society to produce those kind of outcomes. Hmm. Those are my thoughts. Nick, I'd love to hear yours. <laughs> 
Well, I, yeah, I don't know what to say. So, well, let's introduce in terms of aquaculture and technology, the kind of uh, latest, greatest new thing, which is recirculating aquaculture systems, yeah. which is farming fish on land, um, which started in, um, and it's all the new fish farms, by and large, most of the new fin fish farms in the US are land-based farms. Um, and I think that's true in Europe as well. Um, started out uh, to farm eel in uh, Europe in the 70s and 80s. And um, the first one was in, uh, in, in the US was in Western Massachusetts in 1991, the uh, Barramundi farm, Josh Goldman, which is now uh, Great Falls Aquaculture, still Barramundi. But uh, in the last 10 years or so, um, the Norwegians started building, you know, after the kind of negative reaction to the near shore salmon farming, they went on land and started building out very large systems. And those are the ones that are now coming to the U.S. There's one in uh, Florida, uh, south of Miami, Atlantic Sapphire. There are three new large salmon uh, land-based farms going in in Maine that have all been permitted one in California. There's one in uh, Wisconsin that's up and running. It is also has an interesting yeah. aspect, which is the aquaponics, because you can use the um, cleaned fish water. Well, first of all, the, the recirculating... Can you explain? Yeah. Nick, do, do uh, me and the <laughs> audience me. a favor. And just can you describe what one of these facilities looks like in the general theory of, of aquaponics? Yeah. Well, so the general theory of the recirculating aquaculture system, the RAS, is you just have a huge tank, which is some 200,000 gallons, you know, it varies. And that water, you know, fish are swimming around in it, they're feeding in it, and they're pooping in it, and the water is cleaned and recirculated. Uh, and there's like a 95 to 99% reuse of that water. And so um, it's, it's fairly efficient except it's high energy usage, <laughs> except for that it's efficient. Um, but then the water, once it's clean, can then be recycled through greenhouses and used to feed the plants. The nitrites in the uh, nitrates, I believe, in the, in the water feed the plants. And then after that, it's cleaned and then re re sent back into the fish tanks. Yeah, it's a so, good it's a good part of the book, and I think uh, the the reference that you're making is to Superior Fish in Hickston, Wisconsin, was that the the example that jumped out at me right. in the book, Nick, uh, which is really amazing, Tyler. Yeah, so they, to, well, I would love to hear about. You know, you it. don't have the deep. sea lice, you don't have the infestation, you don't have uh, the 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 release of uh, of captive fish, fin fish, into wild populations, which is a particular concern in salmon where genetic purity of the stocks is a key thing about how they work and live. Yeah. Um, so putting it on land is great, and then producing, you know, I can't wait till someone puts this together and starts growing weed. Um, you know, they're going to put it well, fish weed. <laughs> Are we fish gonna, weed. Is anybody uh, doing fish weed yet? Well, no, but there was a, uh, I also talk in the book about uh, Hudson Valley Farms in Hudson, New York. Yeah. Uh, John Ng, uh, it's a steelhead farm, but he ha is doing aquaponics and growing hemp. Yeah. Superior, Superior in Wisconsin is growing, you know, uh, leafy greens, I think, pretty much. Yeah. But uh, Hudson Valley is growing hemp, which is a much higher value crop. And uh, so, um, right. and his, his claim is interesting. He said, you, you, all you really need for one of these farms is a good source of water. You don't have to be near the ocean, obviously. Uh, if you're doing it in Indiana or Wisconsin or upstate New York, uh, and you could, you can grow fish and uh, an almond grove or something. I mean, you could, you could grow other right. things as long as you have some source of water. This is uh, this is, I think, an incredibly important yeah this one's step cool. because yeah. uh, I think we've talked we haven't done too much aquaculture content, which I'm hoping to change yeah. on this show, but. Uh, one of the big issues historically with finfish aquaculture, Peter, that you actually taught me about is it's not... So you can imagine, ladies and gentlemen, that the ocean's real big. You can build some really big fish tanks in the ocean. 
with just big netted areas, and you could theoretically have a you know a confined population of salmon or something in there. But the problem is you have to feed them. Yeah. And the, in order to feed them, you have to source their food, and it can end up being an incredibly uh, environmentally dubious process because you're going out into the into the catching wild uh, feed fish that then get pelletized to turn into fish feed pellets for, and yeah. so th- this this is problematic. But you bring the operation on shore, all of a sudden uh, there are new potentials potentialities to do this in a in a uh, more sustainable way. But Nick. I, what's going on here? One of the things that concerns me, and I, I would love to get your opinion on, are we just moving to a world where we're going to have to genetically engineer all of our food and stuff? Because I, I have to imagine, yeah. you know, we're going to we're making special fish now that can, you know, that are modified to eat soy protein and can are disease resistant. Are, are we? Are we? Is this the future of? Well, uh, I, fish? I'm not a food scientist, so I'm not really. <laughs> The one to answer that. Oh, I, mean, I was at a uh, aquaculture conference this week, actually, and someone was doing one of those QR code surveys. And, you know, would you eat, you know, um, cellular based meat or fish products? And, mm-hmm. you know, and um, so I was going, oh, no. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't I don't know. Like, I really can't answer that. I mean, I, I think that um, the ocean is so large, you know, I mean, some food scientists will say that if you were able to make kelp into a uh, a food that people were willing to eat, you could take a, a kelp farm the size of the state of Washington and feed most of the world, hmm. or the, the the New England New York uh, coastline, and feed the world. So, but that's kelp. I mean, but yeah, that sounds like a boring diet. I don't know if I can do it seven days a week. You I know, know every meal, <laughs> three three square meals of kelp. It's a well, bit you can slimy. have oysters as well. So, that's, <laughs> so like uh, most of the aquaculture in the world is uh, either oysters or or uh, shellfish, I should say, and uh, and or kelp, and a lot of it in Asia. So, a couple of things about aquaculture. One is, it's the fastest growing form of food production in the world. So. Um, by far. And the other one is that I've just learned about recently is like in, in the in the northeast United States, like from Cape Hatteras up to Bay of Fundy, the NOAA Northeast Territory, uh, number one uh, uh, landing by value is lobster, scallops is number two, yeah. and number three is aquaculture <laughs> combined. Huh. And so I had no idea that it was that. I didn't uh, either. It's, it's mostly uh, mostly oysters and uh, kelp with some salmon farms, Cook Aquaculture in Maine. Uh, but now we've got all these other, um, there's a Branzino farm in uh, Waterbury, Connecticut, uh, the, the Barramundi, the salmon farms, the kingfish farm, there's an eel farm in Maine, all the land base. So the, the aquaculture value uh, compared to say ground fish which is you know very people pay a lot of attention to the ground fish because it's so iconic and traditional and historic but it's a very small piece of the uh, puzzle at the moment well so one of the and this is uh nick one of the things i liked about the book uh, the level of research about the companies that are entering uh innovative practices when it comes to aquaculture is really well documented and discussed uh, the suggestion, and, and I, I pulled this paragraph out of the book somewhere in the middle, but about the um, environmentally sustainable blue revolu- revolution uh, consisting of three elements. Uh, Lay them on me. Wh- one of which I know, Tyler, is near and dear to your heart, which is nearshore restorative bivalve and seaweed farms. Oh, yeah, baby. Oysters and mussels uh, aquaculture, uh, coupled with seaweed, kelp being one example. Uh, the second one being offshore farms, which are removed uh, from the environmentally sensitive coastal zone, so further offshore. Right. Uh, net pin aquaculture uh, that we were just talking about. And the third one is this land-based recirculating aquaculture system technology, which I have to agree with you, Nick, I think is a potentially a massive uh, contributor to fish production when 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 the economics of those systems get proven and the investors show up to, to, to write the check. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, that's a it's, good, 
point because you know it's they're very expensive. Yeah. Uh, they're they're essentially huge um, life support systems to keep the fish alive for two or three years until they're market ready. Or and they're also large scale waste management systems. So they're they're complex to run and uh, a lot can go wrong. You talked about the technology earlier. You know, there's a lot of machine learning algorithms built into these things and automated feeding things and sensors and alerts, checking levels of you know oxygen and salinity and 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 uh, nitrogen and yeah, uh, and so there's a lot that can go wrong. And when things go wrong, you can, you can lose a lot of fish fast. Yeah, That's, I can uh, imagine. Yeah, you lose the whole crop essentially, and it has happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and your point about the investors, yeah, it's a big investment and. To really pay it back, you've got to scale, and of course, when you scale, that's that's, and you try to scale fast to make the money back. You, that's when things can. So, it's a proven technology, but it's not a totally proven uh, business model yet yeah. at scale. Well, I do think, as Tyler pointed out, I think to me one of the critical issues on finfish aquaculture, whether it is um, land based. Uh, or in the open ocean and net pens, is the food sourcing. Uh, I wanted to mention, uh, we, before the show, Nick, we were talking a little bit about the AQUA Act, which is A-Q-U-A-A Act, which is a federal bill in Congress right now. This week, uh, the uh, Stronger Through Seafood Association is organizing a major three-day campaign to lobby for the AQUA Act. This would simplify... Uh, the permitting of finfish aquaculture offshore. One of the big complaints well-documented in the book, Nick, is the complexity of the or the impossibility of the regulatory network right now, uh, framework for uh, finfish aquaculture, and this bill is uh, designed to address that. And I mention it only because one of the major advocates for that law is Cargill, the agricultural food production company, along with Red Lobster, uh, these are industries who are uh, going to supply the food and, and buy the products, Tyler. So there's a and move Car afoot. Cargill is a big uh, uh, producer of uh, feed for, for uh, yeah. fish. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, uh, my, my feeling is that uh, there is a sense of opportunity right now, not only on the, among these private sector players peter i believe we had on uh we had on some aquaculture we did uh activists uh lobbyists from from dc who i believe were pushing some predecessor of the aqua act if not the aqua act itself this yeah. was a couple years ago they were yeah same and, same statute uh, same bill and that was during the trump administration yeah. and the trump administration turned out to be pretty friendly mm -hmm. uh to aquaculture broadly speaking uh and now into the Biden administration, it seems like the momentum has continued, if not even yeah. gone further. Yeah. Uh, Joe Biden seems to be a believer in the blue economy. Uh, Dr. Rick Spinrad, uh, the administrator of NOAA, has taken the blue economy idea that our good friend and host of the American Blue Economy podcast, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, uh, shepherded through his tenure as leader of NOAA. That has been continued. Yeah. And uh, aquaculture is absolutely a, a, an important piece of the puzzle. And I think, I think we see why. We got to feed ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, the other thing is, you know, and the reason why uh, politicians are behind it is because we have a $17 billion trade deficit in seafood. And wow. Yeah. With, and so aquaculture is the fastest growing form of food production in the world. And the U.S. has 1% share of the global market. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of room for growth there. And um, because otherwise we're, we're living off, you know, imported uh, farmed salmon and shrimp from a, the other side of the world by in tuna. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so something has got to change. And, and, you know, part of the, part of this, the, the book is about the efforts to kind of rebuild, break apart the global commoditized fish food distribution system. Right, because no one knows the fish is flying all over the world. It's yeah. uh, 
one of the quips is that Boston, uh, Logan Airport in Boston is the uh, largest fishing port in the U.S. <laughs> I love that so, quote. That was a great part. I, that caught my eye. It's a huge yeah. import-export terminal for fish. It's Yeah, considered the largest fishing terminal in the world is Logan <laughs> Airport in Boston. I, th- I think that this is one of the major things that is yeah. going to change about the fisheries space is uh, we did the show with uh, Ev Ashwell, who's on the board of the Ventura uh, Harbor District uh, in Ventura, where I'm from, ladies and gentlemen. You hear a lot yeah, about it. Yeah, it was a good show. <laughs> it was a good show. Muscle aquaculture, that, guys. Well, that's right. And and uh, Ev was talking about the Ventura Shellfish Enterprise Project, which is a project that the, the port there, the harbor, had undertaken to uh, create new a new economy for the, for the port so that they can, you know, the port's trying to stay in business. They, they have a currently an active commercial fishing fleet, but the fleet is leaving because the fish stocks are changing. The fish are moving and they collect those slip fees. So they're thinking, Hey, in 10 years, can we maybe transition this stuff to aquaculture activity as opposed right. to commercial fishing activity, yeah. which I personally think is pretty cool. Yeah, that's a good idea. So that got me thinking, hey, yeah. maybe I should uh, get into this line. I think I'm, I'm for this. Tyler, Tyler wants to be a muscle aquaculturalist. I think you should do well, it. I've, uh, I've, I'm leaning very heavily into it. But uh, what I'll... T- what I'll t- it's, a, it's a high upfront investment, I'll tell you. Oysters is much less expensive to get into. Well, hmm. Might be the case, but I'm going muscles. And and uh, the what's what's interesting, though is that uh, in this transition, when I go to, you know, the first thing when I started learning about this, I started to talk to my parents and my, my friends who live in the area. And they were astounded that 100% of the squid that are landed in Ventura Harbor, it's the largest, it's the, it's the busiest uh, commercial fishing harbor First on the squid. West Coast, on the West Coast period, really? that's not in Alaska. Correct, Ventura Harbor. Wow, and it's squid. It's a big. It's a major squid, and one hundred percent of those squid get shipped to China. Is that right? Now, by the same token, if you wanted to go buy a mussel, you know, a, a bowl of mussels, those are coming in from somewhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. And so, I do think that it, in the future, but this is an area, Peter, that is in severe drought. Uh, the idea of sustainability is really on people's minds, I realize that dramatic behavioral change has not yet occurred. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I have to say that if you had, if there was a way to offer uh, a more locally produced food source and provide that to the community, I think people, uh, no pun intended, but I think they'd eat it up. <laughs> well, it's a big part of the book, Nick, is, is the, the, let's talk about this distribution issue you brought up, you, but, uh, the locavores, which are to people who are trying to produce uh, proteins and food at, uh, within 100 miles of where you live, is a huge trend. But in distribution, Nick, what innovative practices do you foresee that are going to change the way fish protein is traded and shipped uh, produced and consumed around the world. What are what's new? What's coming down the pike? Uh, do you think in this area? Well, I guess a couple of things. One one new thing that um, really picked up during the pandemic was uh, producers or fishers people selling direct to consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Because usually most fish is consumed in restaurants, typically, and um, they were all closed. And uh, so a lot of people started kind of flash freezing. Uh, there's uh, Red's Best in Boston, which is a great, uh, great outfit, installed all these kind of negative 130 degree f- freezers during the pandemic. So uh, they could ship out, you know, bluefin tuna for sushi and, and whatever. And Sitka uh, salmon shares in Alaska is flash yeah. freezing and shipping salmon to uh, the Midwest. So it's going direct from the uh, fisherman to the uh, consumer. And it, uh, that's not going to work for everyone because it's expensive, obviously. It's right. a kind of a high end thing. Um, the other thing is just the traceability systems, you know, and uh, because so much of the fish that comes into the U.S. is of kind of unknown provenance. So the only labeling you need is country of origin. Wow. And that's so it. there's a lot, there's a lot of, uh, there's a big push to, uh, develop, uh, global standards to trace the fish and identify illegally caught or mislabeled fish. 
DNA sampling and blockchain traceability and so forth. And I, th I think that will make a big difference for um, consumers if they know where things are coming from and then they can trust the, the, uh, the provenance of it, you know, which they can't really now. Okay, so, so the innovative area <clears throat> number uh, two and three, uh, aquaculture being a, a significant innovative uh, area in, in uh, fisheries uh, development, uh, the direct sourcing of, of uh, seafood to the consumer I think you're quite right. Uh, during the pandemic, that did get a huge boost uh, with the restaurant closures. A good friend of Tyler and I's, who was a uh, worked in seafood conservation, became a chef, and was very interested in getting into the seafood restaurant business uh, during the pandemic. Of course, very poorly timed. Uh, is now mm -hmm. working on uh, cellular-based protein production in Europe. But uh, Sitka Salmon Shares, I'm just looking at their website. We, my wife and I took a serious look at this. Uh, Tyler, $159 a month uh, gets you four and a half pounds of fresh-caught wild uh, salmon, Alaska salmon, shipped to your house every month. Now, that's a specialty product, but, yes. uh, but, uh, but it's worked for the fishermen. I'll now. tell you what's brilliant about it, in my opinion, yeah. is that uh, the fishermen... It's a it's it's resilient. It yeah. allows the fishermen to know what, how much money they're going to make before they go out. And now, assuming they're able to meet their demand and or, or parcel out what it is that they catch, and it is a sustainable amount coming in, I think that that model is, is so cool. much better. I mean, I, I when when I was out in uh, on the Big Island of Hawaii, Peter, uh, you you and I both got to go out there this mm -hmm. year, this past year. And uh, I was talking to a coffee farmer, and he was an old retired guy. This is his second job, and he sold all of his coffee before it came off the tree. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Every every bean was sold. Usually, he tried to sell it to a single distributor. Hmm. You know, some some nice coffee distributor on the mainland or wherever. It's global, but. I think that the, that move to try to link an individual buyer to a, 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 producer, a producer is really smart. I mean, Nick, do you think that that, it, I mean, to me, yeah. that would make it easier to be a fisherman, I'll tell you that much, if I had like yeah. a Netflix-style well, subscription. Mean, and also, um, it provides a direct connection between a producer and a consumer, especially not if you're shipping from Alaska to Chicago or something, but if you're going through... You know, the local catch network, which started in 2008, uh, has now got more than 500 distribution points in the U.S. And they're, they're like, you know, community-supported fisheries, like just like CSAs in agriculture. Um, and, yeah, you do have a, a, a clear connection to uh, the producer. And you also learn to eat different types of fish because they're selling what they catch. I love that. Rather than you're, you go to the supermarket and say, I want cod, I want salmon, I want shrimp, right? <laughs> you just, you take whatever you get. You get scup, hake, fluke, uh, um, you know, yeah. monkfish, skate, whatever. And you, so you, it introduces people to what the ocean is providing. Uh, what the, you know, there's a chapter in the book called eating with the ecosystem, which is what that is all about. Mm -hmm. You just, you eat what the ocean produces and is abundant, and you don't try to kind of demand this or that. You, you take what you can get, and you learn to cook, you know, differently. You learn, you have to play around with recipes, and there are a lot of, um, you know, great cooking shows now. And Barton Seaver, who's a great uh, chef and now a, a seafood advocate and literacy, seafood literacy advocate, uh, has, it does uh Great shows on Roxube, uh, the network about cooking different fish. Hmm. Um, so there, there's a there is an undercurrent. Uh, it's going to take a long time to break the global commodity chain, though. That's for sure. No doubt about it. But the, I think that you know, I, I I I started with this question earlier in the show, Nick, about this idea of revolution, and I really would love to come back to your title and um, some of the words that you chose, but. Uh, you know, we, Peter, you and I watch the news of the American shoreline and the ocean, the broader ocean space, like hawks, honestly, you're, you're chief hawk. I'm like, 
I don't know. I'm I'm another. I'm a hawk, just kind we, of orbiting we keep around. An eye. We keep an eye. Keep a, a, a <laughs> hawk eye out there, and uh, we have. It's we are seeing new features rise over the past few years. Uh, deep sea mining. I'm talking about in the broader blue economy space. Mm. Deep sea mining is definitely there's about 300 times more <laughs> stories no. today than there were a few years ago yeah, on that subject. On the door. It's knocking on the door. <clears throat> uh, you mm-hmm. talk. We talk about uh, offshore wind. I mean, the, geez, five years ago, this was still theoretical. There were naysayers that oh, it'll never happen. Now, good Lord, it, it, we're steaming. It seems like we're steaming full steam ahead. I think we are. And it seems to be going faster and faster and faster. It is kind of a revolution. We've passed a tipping point type of thing. Yeah. But on the fisheries space, I can't say that I've had that vibe just in the fishery uh-huh. space altogether. I feel that way in aquaculture, as you know. I'm. I think it's. I think it's the coolest shit going on. But uh, Nick, why the word revolution? Is is it a slow rev? Is it you know well, how, how, how has this word, thing revolved? The word revolution is often overused, right? <laughs> um, but I, I picked. I, I use it because um, you know in the sixties and seventies there was the Green Revolution, sorted by uh, the Rockefeller Foundation and I think maybe the Ford Foundation, that uh, focused on increasing yields of rice and, and wheat in Mexico and Asia and was very successful for a couple of decades, but then became kind of lost its, you know, it kind of quadrupled yields pretty quickly just with irrigation and fertilizer. Hmm and sometimes pesticides, I think. So they, they didn't do the soil any favors. Then in the 80s, there was a blue revolution uh, started in India, I believe, and it was mostly freshwater focused. But again, it was to feed the world, to feed India. And uh, that also then morphed into, you know, destruction of mangrove swamps in Thailand and Vietnam to farm shrimp. And yeah. so that took a, a negative turn. Uh, so I've taken that blue revolution from the freshwater uh, Asian and said it's it's going worldwide, it's going marine, ocean-based, and it's uh, a much more sophisticated, uh, mature revolution. Hmm. It's evolved. <laughs> the revolution has evolved. I hope with so. The technology it's an, and the is it an evolution? But <laughs> evolution, right. Yeah, well, that would have been a better title, I think. <laughs> well, I hope I hope it has because when you know, Tyler Sylvia Earle, who uh, is a friend, a good friend of of uh, the the American Shoreline Podcast Network, and in particular Leslie Ewing's show uh, mm. out in California, Sylvia Earle has called for the end of wild caught fisheries around oh, yes, the world, I saw that. and uh, mm-hmm. you know she says, "Look, th- th- we had to make the transformation." Uh, on land uh, hunting practices, we no longer hunt wild animals for food, right? And we should not do it in the sea. Now that is a stunning proposition, given the dependency that we have on wild caught fish around the world. Uh, is she wrong about that, um, Nick? And well, what do you think? I mean, is it even conceivable? Yeah. Well, you know, the big question about the ocean is that um, there's so little we don't know right <laughs> and um that's why you know as you mentioned earlier part of the blue economy really is figuring out better ways to collect data and understand what's going on understand the science um but you know jacques cousteau had a, a i can't remember the exact quote but he said it's it's a kind of natural uh, evolution of humankind is to farm rather than hunt so basically saying what sylvia mm-hmm. is saying so um so these kind of uh, uh, wise uh, ocean people are on the same path. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I I don't know. I mean, maybe it's impossible to control well, the human predation instinct. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, I want to just jump in if I can. Yeah. Yes. Because because it's hell. I'm a co-host. <laughs> <laughs> you can. I can do it. But you know what I I would say is, uh, you know, people do still hunt. And it's uh, more recreational. It's certainly not meat hunting. Uh, and uh, in this country, due to market hunting, I'm talking about in North America, virtually everything on four legs was killed off. I'm talking about everything. Possums, raccoons, things that are now back mm-hmm. that we take for granted. Squirrels, everything was gone. Hmm. 
all killed and eaten largely by by humans. Yeah. And uh, we are still operating that way. We have regulations, credit, but so much of the sea is this is not enforceable, and you can go and take. Uh, wild-caught fish from anywhere in the ocean done in a shady way and go into a port and sell that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And make money. And Still pretty, pretty... Well, and, and, and Nick talks about that in the book. Uh, illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing on the high seas. Still a huge problem, Nick. Is there any meaningful movement toward tackling the problem Tyler's talking about there? Yeah, well... One thing is, you know, I mentioned that Global Fishing Watch, which is this kind of Google Sky Truth and uh, Oceana mm-hmm. uh, operation that is using uh, signals from ships to and satellite data to portray in the Internet a, a map of, you know, ship traffic in real time, basically. Yeah. On the ocean. And they can use algorithms to determine which boats are fishing and sometimes which boats are fishing illegally, which has been actually led to the uh, apprehension, arrest, indictment, and conviction of a lot of boats and captains and the cartels behind them. Hmm. Uh, There's still a long way to go, obviously. Um, It's good to hear, though. Yeah. yeah. And the the other thing is, you know, you mentioned, I think Peter mentioned the, um, the idea that you can just go into any port and sell it there's also there's a movement to actually uh, put the clamps down on ports like that and just uh, or to s- speed up the, the people that um, uh, can prove that they're fishing legally and 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 uh, retard the other ones. So you could, you, there's mm-hmm. a way to punish them or just not take their stuff. It's all that uh, traceability question, which is how yes. can you document the origin and the chain of custody on fish species? Um your good, your good friend there in the in the first chapter, the, the the codfather guy, was notorious. I mean, his entire business model was relabeling uh, fish. Uh, he had a vertically integrated company. He would catch it, process it, and market it. And uh, his he made hundreds of millions of dollars in 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 re in, re- in fraudulent I- fish, fraudulently identifying the fish and changing. Yeah, I mean that fish is a fraud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's hard. Well, the to... thing is, thing. Well, I feel bad for the Codfather because he probably was not the only person doing this. <laughs> so, no, he uh, was just the best at it. Yeah. Well, he or he's or the he one that caught. took. Yeah, he he yeah. got he took the fall, but someone had to take the fall. Sorry, Codfather, yeah. you took the fall. Yeah, it was, uh, he was a crook. He's a crook. You no, I'm not. The law, but, I'm not shedding know. any tears. Well, you here. know, the, to get back to your other question about you know the stopping fishing altogether, this whole idea of the marine protected uh, areas in the ocean, right. there are a lot of you know proposals about that. One of which is to shut off all the high seas to fishing. That is the all the ocean, which is outside the two hundred mile limit of every country. Yeah, it's about sixty percent of the ocean. Yeah, that course, ain't gonna happen. No, that ain't gonna happen. <laughs> uh, uh, and it would be hard to monitor. Yeah. Uh, but then there's another uh, proposal to then be very targeted about doing certain sections, large enough swaths, in certain sections, to you know because there are certain places where there are more fish than other. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, that, it yeah. seems like that is a really, uh, given the you know the, the the issue of climate change, where fish are forced to adapt, if they're trying to escape predation and adapt, that's a pretty tough chore. But yeah. if they're at least given a, a refuge, maybe there's a better yeah. opportunity to adapt. Well, the the Biden thirty for thirty initiative, which is to preserve thirty percent of the land area, thirty percent of the ocean, this has been talked about around the world mm. uh, to increase the size and uh, of MPAs, the marine protected areas. Uh, there's good evidence to believe that fish stock health is, is well served by protected areas that, uh, that are not commercially exploited uh, to allow for, you know, the, the spawning of, of these commercially important species and areas where this, the stocks can be healthy before they move out into catchable areas. And I believe that's probably true, uh, Nick, that we do have to provide that level of protection as we scramble around. I mean, the thing that now, Tyler, is 
there isn't a fish in the sea that we can't find and catch. That the technology, the technological capability now in fisheries is pretty unlimited. Uh, if you've got enough money to put the right boat together, you can catch everything out there. And the only way we're not going to do that is we've got to dial back and regulate that practice. And, I mean, I think and evolve. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I think that uh, we are we need to eat more mussels and kelp okay yeah, yeah. you know these are and and shellfish that are uh sustainable that hey here's my other thing and nick i really just have to say thank you for writing this book and drawing attention to uh the source of seafood and fish because uh the, to me the big the big thing here it's not just that we have a baby little uh aquaculture industry and the potential for it to grow is so great. It's that we import, we're not, we're not sustainable right now. We're importing so much of our stuff. And even if we just focused on being more, uh, locavore ish, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, I think that that would go a long way. I love, I love to see some of these trends that are, um, happening. I, I have to say, Peter, you're the one that usually asks, are you, the, are you optimistic? <laughs> I'm optimistic. Nick, are you optimistic? Yeah, I am. Well, I was going to say what you were talking about, the marine protected areas. And, and one of the reasons for optimism, if if you could get to 30 by 30, which is not clear, that uh, fish stocks have shown that they will rebuild in a 10-year period, by and large. Uh, uh, of course, climate change is a big kind of unknown. You know, the, the warming Huge. and the acidification is going to just, you know, changing the whole bio geochemistry of the ocean. So everything's kind of up in the air, yeah. but fish stocks do and have and will rebuild, which is yeah. good if, if you can, you know, give them some, a refuge. I agree. I mean, you know, I always said fish and wildlife management when I was at A&M and people were, were, you know, majoring in wildlife management. I said, there's no such thing. Fish and wildlife management is a people management practice. What it we're is. trying to manage are the people who are killing yeah. and, and, and harvesting. Mm-hmm. If you leave the critters alone, they're really good at doing what they do, which is to populate and reproduce. If we're not screwing up the habitat that they need and we're not capturing and harvesting them, believe it or not, there will be a whole bunch of them. And, and uh, they, they're, they're really – the natural system functions quite well. It's quite recoverable. Particularly in the in an ocean environment, yeah, I think I think mm-hmm. you know, on the one hand, Peter, there's this uh, uh, two things are true at the same time. You're right; we could catch every fish in the sea because we ha- we can build massive boats. We have the technique. Yeah. We'll bait them in. We'll net them. We'll yeah. we'll harpoon them. We can do it all. We have sonar. We have right. lights. We can do it in any condition. Uh, Three hundred and sixty-five days a year. That on the one hand, that's true. On the other hand the mysteries of the ocean and how everything works together and how particularly the biological life is impacting the actual physical currents and water and acidity and oxygen levels and all that stuff. Yeah. This is like the, this is the frontier that will be uncovered. I think with, with all of this new data and sensors and, and this is all going to happen together. And uh, I I have to say, I I, I circle back. I am optimistic. I, I think that this is, uh, this is a solvable and very workable problem, and uh, I love mussels. <laughs> yeah, I, I love steep. I love scallops. I mean, I'm yeah, a huge yeah, fan. Good. and I'm a I'm a big fan of, of lobster. I, you know, I'm generally optimistic too. Although I have to say that this week uh, in the Washington Post, the headline oh no. is uh, I, I know "Where You're Going." <laughs> uh, the ocean animals face a mass extinction from climate yeah. change. Uh, this was Karen Kaplan. Sarah Kaplan wrote the oh. story. Uh, predicting a massive die-off of of uh, marine life, and it's it's primarily a climate change-driven uh, uh, story. Uh, as you said, Nick, it's about the the modification of the fundamental geochemistry of the ocean. And in your book, there are some very disturbing sections that talk about the fall off of phytoplankton and plankton and the quality of the plankton and the nutrition level of the plankton, which is leading to starvation and breakdown of the marine food web. I mean, I'm optimistic too, but there's some, there's some scary, there's some scary stuff. Some big problems there. There's no easy answers, are there, to those issues? Mm -mm. I mean, even if we stopped uh, CO2 emissions right now, today, 
uh, the effects would probably linger for another 50 years or something, they we, say, you know? And, yes. Uh, We've so. built it in. Yeah. Uh, we're not done. Uh, <laughs> well, what a cool book and a really a great survey of a, a very large, uh, intricate issue, Nick. Really well researched, well written, uh, very informative. Uh, I really appreciated uh, the book and encourage folks out there to grab a copy uh it comes out from the island press i guess nick is it when does it officially hit the streets when can you buy it uh actually the best it's out island press has it now uh, islandpress.org and uh, i think that's the best place to get it right now because i don't think it's into um the amazon barnes and noble bookstore system yet it okay. will be in a couple of weeks but islandpress.org has it now Great. so um, and they also have a 20 percent discount with the code sullivan all right so, yeah there you go <laughs> there's a hot deal ladies and gentlemen and i didn't ask him but my uh my my mother's family who are sullivans from springfield massachusetts uh, oh really yeah ah. yeah a lot of sullivans up there in that part of the world the book is called the blue revolution hunting harvesting farming seafood in the information age ladies and gentlemen it is Nick Sullivan. He is a senior research fellow at the Center for Maritime Studies at the Fletcher School of Tufts University. Uh, Nick, can't tell you how much we appreciated the discussion today. Very, very interesting. And good luck with this book and your next one, too. Beaches of sail to build hotels. My father 